Open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 16. <clears throat> As we continue our chronological study through the Lord's ministry, uh, it's probably starting to seem like we're stuck in Luke. We've gone through Luke 14, 15, and 16 now with, without really jumping into any of the other synoptic or the gospel according to John. Uh, but a lot of these events were uh, really part of the same teaching, the same conversation. As Luke 14, we talked about the co- considering the cost of discipleship and I taught last, the last couple Sundays about how even Luke 15 was connected to that same lesson. We go right back into it here in Luke 16, looking at stewardship. And that's what we see here in Luke 16. There's two parables on stewardship. And first, we're going to look at verses 1 through 13, and then we'll pick up uh, more of it, a little bit more of it today, and probably the rest of it next Sunday, Lord willing. Luke 16, verse 1. And Jesus said also unto his disciples that, Uh, There was a certain rich man which had a steward, and the same was accused unto him that he had wasted his goods. And he called him and said unto him, How is it that I hear of thee? Give an account of thy stewardship, for thou mayest be no longer steward. Then the steward said within himself, What shall I do? For my Lord taketh away from me the stewardship. I cannot dig. To beg I am ashamed. I am resolved what to do that when I, when I am put out of the stewardship, they may receive me into their houses. So he called every one of the Lord's debtors unto him. And that word debtor is very important to this parable. He calls every one of, the, of his Lord's debtors unto him and said unto the first, How much owest thou unto my Lord? And he said, An hundred measures of oil. And he said unto him, Take thy bill and sit down quickly and write fifty. Then said he to another, And how much owest thou? And he said, An, an hundred measures of wheat. And he said unto him, Take thy bill, and write fourscore. And the Lord commended the unjust steward, because he had done wisely. For the children of this world are in their generation wiser than the children of light. And I say unto you, Make yourselves friend, or make to yourselves, this is Jesus again talking to his disciples, Make to yourselves friends of the mammon of unrighteousness, that when ye fail, they may receive you into everlasting habitations. He that is faithful in that which is least is faithful also in much. And he that is unjust in the least is unjust also in much. If therefore ye have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who will commit to your trust the true riches? And if ye have not been faithful in that which is another man's, who shall give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Establishing uh, right out of the, the, the gate, right there in verse 1, the Lord establishes for his audience that the steward served this certain rich man. The steward is not just some certain man. He's not described here as a Pharisee or a scribe. He's not given a name like Lazarus and the certain rich man in the previous uh, or, or what we'll see rather in the latter portion of this chapter, he's literally a steward to this rich man. He's a servant to him. This word steward is defined by Strong's as the manager of household or of household affairs. And he goes on to say that it's a metaphor for the overseers called of God to the work Jesus commissioned the church to oversee or commit to, which ties in perfectly with what we talked about this morning. So he is teaching what we would call church members after this morning's lesson, the importance of stewardship. And 
in a sense, adaptability, but I don't want to throw that out there by itself. So you'll see that connection, Lord willing, here in a moment. A steward is one of immense responsibilities, and that is only to his master. We, as stewards of God's trust, what he has commissioned us unto, we have an immense responsibility to God. Now, you'll see there's other things tied to it. If you want to start turning to 1 Peter chapter 2, that's where we're going to go next. You'll see there's other things tied to it, but those responsibilities are because of our responsibility to God. They are not standalone responsibilities that will in any way ever trump God's will for us and expectation of us. So look, if you will, there at 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 through 17. Brother Peter writes, Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims. And yes, we read this text last week, but there's, I want to bring out certain words here that Peter's using. I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims. It's a, this is a plea, an exhortation, one of passion and commitment. to. He's writing to people he knows. Uh, like-minded, passionate souls have been called by Christ Jesus. And Simon Peter was one of them. And he says, I beseech you, as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts. This, lust, this is another strong word, abstain from. He doesn't say temper, back away, or, or just reduce. He says abstain completely from fleshly lusts. And he doesn't say they're just bad for the soul. Look at the next phrasing, which war against the soul. I want you to think about fleshly lust. Most of us immediately think of pornography, but there's more than just that. Dallas cheerleaders are not any better than pornography, beloved. Abstain from fleshly lust, and this is why. It wars against your soul. You know, if it was presented like that, there'd be maybe a little bit more consideration before we dove headlong into it, right, gentlemen? But this is the, uh, the obligation that Simon Peter writes of here. He's beseeching us to abstain from because it will war against our souls. This is a personal thing. And he even talks about conversation and citizenship in the next line. Having your conversation, same word translated citizenship elsewhere, honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they shall behold or observe, Glorify God in the day of visitation. Now, we're not done, but again, last time we talked about this, we talked about the importance of our conversation because it will be observed, and it will be observed toward the glorifying of God or the opposite. It's not an unglorifying, but a lack of glorification of God. Continuing on, Peter says, Submit yourselves. Another very strong word, and not just once, but to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake. This is what we were just talking about. The steward is honoring God in honest and in honoring the commandments that God has seen fit to have him under. Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether it be to the king as supreme or unto governors as unto them that are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of them that do well. For so is the will of God. You might want to mark that or circle that. For so is the will of God, that with well-doing ye may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. So this is the second time Peter references that. Last week we didn't get that far in the set of texts that we looked at here from 1 Peter chapter 2. But we see twice now, Simon Peter is talking about the importance of a Christian's reputation amongst the world because of the glorification of God. 
And then he goes on, as free and not using your liberty for a cloak of maliciousness, but as the, uh, but as the servants of God. Which brings us back to this first parable. Servants, stewards of God. It ends with honor all men, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Four very short sentences that all fall under one heading. Many are impacted by what we do as stewards in these verses, but it is, uh, it is done because it is the will of God and we are His servants. Not just necessarily because it's something nice we want to do. Not just because we don't want to make enemies. Not just because we want to always appear friendly. But because it is the will of God. Him first, above all else. If the steward chooses to not honor his master, this is what we see in the parable, he too will likely feel the chastening of his Lord under the precept that he has wasted his goods. What these goods are in reference to is not something tangible. And I, I apologize for the mic knocking. I'm not even touching the pulpit, so I don't know where that sound's coming from. But um, nonetheless, we'll continue on. The goods that are being referenced here is what has been entrusted to the steward. Now, it's not what's in his wallet. It's not what he's got locked up at home. It's not what he's got buried in the Aiken hole that he treasures most that no one's allowed to know about. It is what has actually been entrusted to his character. Where is it that we're to keep treasure? Where moth and rust cannot corrupt. It's in the kingdom. And what we store up in the kingdom is through service to God. What's being referenced here, although it's subtle, we see just a few verses into the text that the steward will give an account of their stewardship. This is literally what this steward is talking about in the parable. I will have to give an account. He's brought to, uh, brought to the mat. He's brought before his master to account for what he's done with what he's been entrusted with. How would we fare? I don't know how long everybody in here has been saved, if you are saved. But if you've been saved for any certain amount of time, how would we fare? If suddenly this afternoon we were called before the Lord to answer or give an account of what we've been entrusted with. Have you done everything in love? Have you always been kind? Have you put this little fire out that's unquenchable? Have you repented? Now let's get into the hard stuff. None of that, none of that qualifies. Have you forgiven? Have you fed your enemies? Watered your enemies? Cared for your enemies? Have you seen to the needs of the widow, the orphan? Have you lifted up feeble hands? Have you been an encouragement? Have you honored all men? Loved the brotherhood? Truly feared God and honored the king? The day is fast approaching when we will all give an account of our stewardship or an account of our lives in general. Today is the day in which we should ask the question as this steward asks, what shall I do? Think of the, the, For the steward to ask this question, he's in a, in a type of panic. My master has come calling to, to see in, in what we might say in the world an ROI, a return on investment, the profitability or the fruitfulness of his steward. What shall I do is not an acceptable answer at that throne. What shall I do? We've talked about this throne before. We'll be compelled to only be honest. We will be un incapable of lying at all. What shall I do? What shall we do this moment if we're called before that throne? 
Now, even though there is a chapter break between the last Luke 15, that last parable we talked about of the seeking father or what most people would know as the prodigal son, the lesson is connected and we need to make sure that we see that. We cannot miss that connection. Jesus is not telling his disciples here that they will lose their salvation. He is specifically saying they could lose their stewardship or their responsibility to oversee certain things. Make no mistake, this would be a great loss indeed for serving the Father should be considered a blessing for every child of the King. And to lose an opportunity to serve the Father, to serve our Master, it would be most devastating. It should be. I I hate that we even have to consider using that word instead of would. But it should be devastating for us to lose an opportunity to serve God. But that is what happens. And and, and allow me to, to illustrate that for a moment. I get cut off in traffic, and as I learned just a few months ago, it gets real hot in Tulsa, so the windows are down. I get cut off in traffic, and if it were a movie, you'd suddenly see exclamation point, dollar sign, at symbol, and everything else over my mouth, because I just let out all my frustration in in a stream of swear words. And then that person that heard me say those things walks through that door Wednesday night. I have lost my opportunity to be a blessing and to serve my master in witnessing to this person. I have forsaken it. I have given it up. I relinquished control over myself. I became slave to my own wrath and temper for just a moment. And I missed out on a blessing which could be a new member to this church or someone with a link to a whole family that needs to hear the gospel. And we could extrapolate that on and on and on, but it's a simple example that probably most of us experience every day. One moment of us losing our cool, one moment of us pretending we're not Christian for just a short piece of time, and we've lost an opportunity to serve the Master and witnessing to the One. I was thinking when when Charlie was talking about the the song that we just sang, we were talking about our nation, I I kept anticipating he was going to say, America used to be beautiful, you should have seen it. And that's how we should witness. The Lord Jesus, you should have seen that. How many gospel songs do we know, sister, where we says, if I'd have been there, if I would have been there, I know Lainey knows the one I'm referencing now, but how many times we talk about, do you know the one? Were you there? That's a type of witnessing. You should have seen it. The whole crowd chanting, crucify him, crucify him. And he never spoke against it. He willingly went right down the road with his cross until Joseph was brought in to help bear the cross. And then he faithfully submitted to the cross. He went up upon the cross. And when it was finished, oh man, you should have seen it. The sky went black. Everything went quiet. The earth trembled. Graves opened. We'd never seen such a thing. The veil, oh, if you'd have been there, the veil torn from top to bottom. You know, the people that think that had a deeper meaning. But then when it was done, he cried out, it is finished in his own tongue. And he gave up the spirit, the ghost. They didn't kill him. He gave it up. You want to learn how to witness, make that story one you know better than any other story. You should have been there. Wouldn't be so hard to believe what we read in Acts when they joined day after day after day after day after day and they were all in unison in doctrine. 
It wouldn't be so hard for us to believe that if we witnessed a little more like you should have been there. Man, if you'd have seen it. If you'd have heard it. Think about David when he rolls up and, and, and for 40 days and 40 nights the army's frozen in place because of some giant. You think the soldiers didn't witness to him? Well, he should have been here the last 39 and a half days. He comes out here and says mean words and mocks us. He spits when he talks. He's so big. He's so terrifying. He's so loud. He should have been here. See, we can witness both ways, can't we? They had an opportunity to say the army of God is empowered by His hand. And David, you should have been here. We triumphed over that filthy dog and all of their armies, all the Philistines went running, you should have been here. But instead, they gave up their testimony. They didn't believe in the power and the strength of God, did they? Instead, as we said before, little Uber driver David has to roll up delivering sack lunches and say, what did he just say? Oh, Saul, mighty king, give me your armor. Where I come from, the animals I've wrestled with, I'll go and I will slay Goliath because God is mighty enough to use me. So see, we can start to understand how we can lose an opportunity to be a steward. Because those soldiers had a great opportunity to serve as stewards, did they not? One more example. We've talked about the Garden of Eden being like a temple. And Adam was created and charged with keeping the temple, keeping the garden. Only one thing you can't do, but you got access to a whole lot of other things. But that one thing you can't do would be like me telling Zeb not to touch something. He went right for it. Eve went right for it. We can say, oh, but Eve did it. But who was charged to keep the garden? Lesson for another time, but it was Adam. But in that one moment where the instruction failed, whether it was delivered to her badly or not delivered to her at all, the instruction of the charge of Adam failed. Can we understand what it cost all of us since? In that one moment of losing stewardship? It is most devastating, is it not? All of man fell with Adam. All of man. The very soil for which seed had been growing from that point forward gave a struggle. Everything changed. We can understand the devastation. It is our purpose. It's what we do serving our master. It's what we're called to. He says, I cannot dig to beg I am ashamed. And it's not a reference to shame for he is too good to do it. Think again of that prodigal son. He found shame in the place of the pigs. He did not go back to his father because he didn't want to get dirty anymore, but because he had come to himself, the scriptures tell us. And he recognized that his true place was in his father's kingdom. When we recognize, look how powerful that is. When we recognize where our true place is, we find shame everywhere else. Anybody in here been saved and think that's not true? Anybody in here been saved and goes back to watching Sex in the City and Friends and all those things? If you've not been saved very long, maybe you're still there. But those things will be appalling to you soon. We're not meant to be how we were before. And when we're saved, our palate has changed. Our sensibilities begin to change. Our sensitivities begin to change. Our appetite goes from meat or from milk to meat like steak. 
and suddenly we require more of him and less of this place. Suddenly, over time, not suddenly, we begin to long more and more and more for nothing of this place and all of him. How is it with us? Do we find ourselves as stewards or servants of God the Father? Do we get frustrated when we've given in to the flesh and we've missed an opportunity? Listen, if you're here today and you know of an opportunity that you've missed, you are just like the rest of us. We have all missed opportunities to serve the Father. Repent. Repent today. Right now, go to the Lord and repent and ask Him to make it more clear when these opportunities come up and to give you strength to just go through or to give you a wife that will just push you through. That's what He gave me. Because there's times in the flesh I really don't want to. Just like any of the four kids would have said at certain ages, I don't want to. But you need somebody who loves you enough and trusts the same Father you do that's going to give you the nudge to get through the door. Are we delighted to do His will? Are we delighted to do His will above our own? Or have we been found out as wasting His goods? What shall we do? This is what the servant says. This is the question that's on us today. What shall we do? You see, the rest of this chapter begins with wealth and the dangers of wealth. But that's not what the first part's referencing. Uh, not really referencing wealth at all, is it? As this steward is found uh, wasting his goods, wasting what he's been entrusted with, he finds himself dormant, poverty-stricken in a sense. What shall I do? I have nothing to cover this expense. There's a giant IOU, and I will never make enough to cover what I have not done for the Father. You're here and you're saved. There will never be enough good deeds that you will do to thank the Father for your salvation. So understand that you will never make up all those opportunities you've missed. All you can do is the now. All you can do, as I referenced this morning, to start thinking about what a great Christian looks like, a great missionary, what that would look like, and find those excuses and mortify them. Put them to death. Get rid of all the reasons why you can't. There's a magnet I have on my desk in here, and, and I'm going to mess it up. Uh, should have just sent Isaac in to get it, I guess. But a uh, famous college basketball coach once said, do not let the things you can't do get in the way of the things that you can. Somebody afterwards is going to say, you buffoon, you should have known that that was so-and-so. I don't watch basketball, but I like the magnet. But we do that. I can't possibly do this, so why even bother with that? But what if we were designed and called and purposed to only do a lot of that in which we can do? Which, if that's planting the seeds, then maybe that makes it possible for Apollos to come behind and water. Because we are one body. We're connected. No man is an island unto himself. No man stands alone and apart from the will of God. He has placed men and women where he intended for them to be for the purposes of his will, just like we saw this morning. So there are three dangers to wealth, and uh, we're just going to begin it. We're not going to get all the way through it again. Even if you're from Kansas City, you're going to have to come back because the second half of this isn't going to happen today. Wasting wealth, which is what we will begin to see from the text that we're dealing with now. Coveting wealth. And then our last point, which we certainly won't see today, is worshiping wealth, um, which are all dangers. 
The Jews, we need to first understand their, their mindset when it comes to wealth. They considered wealth to be a sign of salvation, to be a sign of God's favor. If one had a lot, he's blessed a lot. Well, it's admirable that they understand where the wealth came from. That's not necessarily how it works. And that, unfortunately, is translated in more recent times to be the prosperity gospel, the health and wealth gospel, the idea that God will prosper those who are most faithful. It doesn't take a ton of digging in those shallow surfaces to discover that that's not true. Remember Mark 10, verses 17 through 27? We looked at this just a few lessons ago. Again, it references discipleship, but if you'll turn there with me, Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 17. We read, And when he was gone forth into the way, there came one running and kneeled to him and asked him. Now, before we even get to what he asked, again, put yourself in, into this narrative here. This man just came running and kneeled. We got a lot of visuals that we can already start to imagine here. And it seems honoring. He's run up to Jesus. He has knelt before Jesus. And then he says, good master. So he's genuflected in a sense to Jesus. And he says, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? And Jesus said unto him, why callest thou me good? There is none good but one. That is God. I love this answer. Because so many would read this, or, or if you were in this situation, you'd think, I just ran up here, I just knelt, I just called you good master. You have this answer. Would you just, why are you trying to sidetrack me and derail this conversation? Just give me the answer. And he did. There's only one good. And there's also only one way. And it's the same answer. He comes up with the wrong question. Good master, what shall I do? that I may inherit eternal life. If you're here today and you're looking for eternal life, I've got bad news for you. You can do nothing. You can't barter for it. You can't earn it. You can't make it. I can't give you any. I can't borrow from my eternity in heaven and give you a day or two. It's literally impossible. The only answer Jesus gives is the only answer there is. There's only one who can do this, and that's God. Thou knowest... The commandments, do not commit adultery, do not kill, do not steal, do not bear false witness, defraud not, honor thy father and mother. I know I'm going fast for those who are listening, but he's rolling through these commandments. And what do we know the law of Moses to be? According to the New Testament, it's our schoolmaster. And it points us to what? Jesus! The very answer he's already given. He says, you know, this and this and this and this and this and this and this. And you can imagine this man who just ran up there, kneeling on the ground, panting. <laughs> I know those things. I know those things. They were intended to point to Jesus, but he's just running through, what do we call this? Religion. He's just running through religion. Thou knowest the commandments. And then he answered and said, Master, all these have I observed from my youth. And there it is, religion. Then Jesus, beholding him, loved him and said unto him, One thing thou lackest. You almost lean in when I pause there, don't you? I bet he did too. He's panting. He's kneeling. The Lord just acknowledged that from his youth, he's honored all these commandments. He's, he's embracing him and loving him. And he, he says, One thing thou lackest. Go thy way. Sell whatever thou hast, give to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven. 
And then he tells them that formula we just looked at in the previous two chapters on how to be a disciple. Come, take up the cross, and follow me. And this man who had just run and knelt and referred to him as good master, who was bobbing his head up and down in Jesus' hands, yes, I've been obedient to religion my whole life. The next verse says he was sad at that saying. He went away grieved, for he had great possessions. Now I understand the rest of this, and we'll read it. Uh, it doesn't have as much to do with that man. And when we can make the argument, we don't really know what that man went and did. He went, he was told to go and sell, so maybe the went, the going part, was already set in motion, and he was also going to sell. But we understand this, this Jesus, the way this works is here. He wouldn't have been sad if his intention was to go and do exactly that thing. He already came with the wrong question. He came with a lineage of religion, which is really just a long time of bad practice. He goes away sad. Jesus looked around about and saith unto his disciples, How hardly shall they that have riches enter into the kingdom of God? And the disciples were astonished at his words. But Jesus answered again, and saith unto them, Children, how hard is it for them that trust in riches to enter into the kingdom of God? It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. And, and to understand that picture, he's not literally talking about a camel going through the eye of a needle, though quite hard as well. The eye of the needle is what they referred to as a point where two mountains came together in a valley, where it was super narrow and rocky. Think of... Lord of the Rings, where, uh, don't remember his name, he had a beard and a sword, I know that narrows it down, but he's going in to get those ghost guys to come help him, and it's very, very narrow. If those horses, imagine those horses as camels with giant bags of riches on the side, they wouldn't have fit. Uh, think Indiana Jones, I think. And what was supposed to be the last thing he did with, his, with Sean Connery before they did four more movies before he turned 100. All of that pictures the eye of the needle, a very narrow trespass between the mountains in which you can't go with a lot. It wouldn't fit. You'd get hung up and you'd have to leave the camel behind. And he says it's impossible for those who trust in riches, who trust in what they carry, who trust in what they've earned or what they've purchased or what they've worked for to enter into the kingdom of God because they can't take those things with them. Think about it. It makes a ton of sense. If our value set is that the things we have or purchased or own or worked for are of the most importance to us, then it's going to hold us back from what is most important. How can I earn eternal life? You can't. But I have all these things. I have all these abilities because of these things that I have. You can't. It's not possible. And then there's a phrase here that's very interesting. And they were astonished out of measure, saying among themselves, who then can be saved? Turn, hold your place there and turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. This is the only other place, place excuse me, that we see this phrasing. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8. Paul writing again, For we would not, brethren, have you ignorant out of our trouble which came to us in Asia, that we were pressed out of measure, above strength, and so much that we despaired even of life. This out of measure is not just a slight bewilderment. For Paul, he's describing being completely without strength and almost to the point of perishing. Beyond the ability of his own strength 
to preserve or sustain or cling to life. And the disciples hearing this, hearing who, who then can be saved is the question that's on their heart. Hearing that this can't be earned. Remember, this is the Jewish mindset. God is favoring those with prosperity that He loves most. That's their mindset. Remember the previous Jewish mindset we talked about? Sinners, they really didn't have anything to say to. They kind of had to work it off. The law would address it, and if they were penitent, they would work it off. Justice was grace. And we see the same thing here. These are not, it's not necessarily justice here, but it's a justification, a self-justification of what they have and have worked for and have earned and what keeps them or sustains them. And Jesus looking upon them saith, with men it is impossible to be saved, but not with God. For with God, all things are possible. So next Sunday afternoon, we'll look at the, the three dangers of wealth. But what an amazing uh, set of verses to really put us in the proper mindset of stewardship, discipleship. Three solid chapters between Luke 14, 15, and 16 on what discipleship is. It's probably pretty important for Dr. Luke to have spent so much time on this. This isn't Dr. Shorthand. He's gone a long way into this, laying out detail for detail for detail, parable upon parable. By the time we're done with Luke 16, we have literally had, I think, six parables just on the subject of discipleship. And really, there's nothing in these three chapters to signify that a day has changed. So this may have been the same day of his ministry in which he's done all these things. And this isn't the day that's referred to as the long day or even the long week. That's already happened. This is the ministry. No, hear me. This is the ministry. There's not his ministry, my ministry, your ministry. This is the ministry. We want to see revival? This is what the ministry looks like. He's giving us opportunities every day. Something comes along and we have a chance to teach or a chance to talk to somebody about the Lord Jesus Christ. And if we pass it up, what can we do? We have failed our master in this thing and we may have missed an opportunity to be a faithful steward. All we can do is repent. We can repent and look for the next opportunity, but make sure, beloved, that we are strengthened by everything that we've missed to be prepared for that next opportunity to give an answer of the hope that lies within. Discipleship is so important. Discipleship is what will secure what their generation and their children's generation, then their children's children, if the Lord doesn't come first, it will make sure that these church houses, these church bodies are still in place with like-minded believers that still believe. You think it's crazy to be a Christian now? Imagine what it will be like and. I'm going to try to think real quick when Zeb will graduate. hundred years from now, imagine what it will be like. I'm not doing math in the pulpit. Beloved, 60 some, almost 60 years this church has been here. It's seen a lot of things change. The next 60 years will be the same. Are we faithful in every moment the Lord has given us to honor Him? I pray for strength for you and for me. This will be a busy week for us. I pray that it's the beginning of many busy weeks. I pray that the Lord comes and finds us working, watching, waiting. I pray that we do indeed hear, as I'm certain that Pete Chadwick just did. Well done, thou good and faithful servant.
Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you once more for the opportunity to preach and teach your word. We're thankful, Father, for the visitors that came to be with us. We pray, Father, you be with them in their travels home. We pray, Father, that you would do a work in their hearts, in our hearts, in the hearts of those that are listening and watching, in the hearts of those that will hear us witnessing, you should have been there. I pray, Father, you'll do a work that would be an encouragement and a rejoicing for us. I pray, Father, we'll be a blessing to Caldwell. I pray we'll be a blessing to the boys' home, however it is you see fit. We pray, Father, for the upcoming meetings. We think of Silsby and uh, uh, Citrus Missionary Baptist Church down there in Florida, as Brother Troy will be having his meeting in the next couple weeks. We think of the uh, meetings in Sefner at the end of the month. We think of this year as it draws to a close. Oh, Father, it started to look promising that this would be the year that you would come, and it still might be. But help us, Father, to enter into the new year, if we do enter into the new year, with a zeal, an excitement, a contagious excitement, Father, that rubs off on other believers. And that it causes the lost to say, what do they have that we don't have? Help us, Father, to be a bunch of weirdos, to be a bunch of zealots, to be fervent, Father. And Lord, we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.